0: Welcome to All Things Alt Tech, a podcast about the digital ecosystem of today and alternative technologies of tomorrow. If you want to get the latest on tech, whether that be social networks, cryptocurrencies, gizmos or gadgets, scams or scandals, this podcast is for you. If you want to hear about privacy and free speech issues, or you just want some general banter on the creepy big tech industry, well, you've come to the right place. So strap in and enjoy. Welcome to the podcast. Today is October 17th, 2020. And today I want to talk about censorship in the Soviet Union and in the USA and whether history is repeating. Now what triggered this thought was this recent example of Twitter and Facebook censoring the disgraceful news about Hunter Biden. Namely that it's now firmly established that he's been selling access to his dad to foreign actors And also that Joe Biden has been lying about this for the past year. Now, if you try to post a link to that material, Twitter would not let your post through because apparently they did not want the public to hear the bad news. Anyway, I don't want to get caught up in the daily news events here, but rather I want to take a look at the bigger picture around censorship. And I want to take a look at the mother of all censorship regimes, namely the USSR. And there are many, many parallels between Soviet censorship and what we are witnessing here today. Anyway, back in the USSR, to maintain the various official government narratives, they had to redact certain facts and certain news and even remove entire persons. They had to silence certain things at all costs. And in fact, just for a little bit of a history lesson here, When the Bolsheviks seized power in Russia in 1917, one of the very first things they did was to limit free speech. Of course, they did this while claiming that what they were doing was to promote freedom. And in that same year, you also had something called the Decree on Press, which basically just prohibited publishing of any material criticizing the Bolsheviks or or their authority. And so following this event, you basically enjoyed 70 years of strangled freedom of expression And you also had, of course, severe punishment for anybody who dared to speak up. Now, we've all seen examples of Soviet image editing, you know, how they removed certain undesirable people from literature, but also from photos and from posters and from paintings. And it was all with pretty impressive results. You got to remember, they did not exactly have Photoshop back in these days. And, you know, photo editing is a lot easier these days, but Outright redactions of images is probably more more difficult because, you know, the internet never forgets, as they say. So complete repression is maybe not as easy to do these days. And thankfully, that's also because of sites such as archive.org, you know, the so-called wayback machine that lets you recall what a certain website looked like on a date in the past. But there is actually some pressure to try and shut down the wayback machine or in other words, to destroy this internet archive so you can never go back and see what was actually said at a certain point in time. And this is mostly on the grounds that archive.org, what they are doing is piracy. And actually, archive.org is blocked in certain countries, such as China, and it has also been blocked in, uh, in Russia. Now, because we are now heading into a paperless world, and because, you know, you have all this gaslighting and the deplatforming and the shadow batting and so forth, I think we are at risk of destroying the only agreed upon record that still exists. We'll see what happens. Anyway, back in the USSR, this complete censorship that we saw was possible because of the centralization, because of that top-down structure. Because you've got to remember that all the media in the Soviet Union was controlled by the state. The television, the radio, newspapers, the magazines, the book publishing, you name it. But today, most of the media, most of the platforms, they are in the hands of just a few corporations. So we do have a top-down structure. We have very, very strong centralization. It's just a different kind. But therefore, I think censorship is just as possible today. Maybe even more so, actually, because we're now in a digital world, as I say. So you can actually control the flow of information with more precision, and even down to the individual basis. And you can influence what each individual sees or doesn't see or think they see. So for example, you might think that you're seeing a certain consensus. Say, for example, you might think that you are witnessing a majority that supports your favorite candidate, for example, or you might think that there is consensus for a certain initiative. Say, for example, that there is general support for climate change intervention or for universal basic income, but what you're just seeing is a squelched conversation. You're just seeing a curated flow of information that's been tailored to you. Now, back in the Soviet era, obviously all the book manuscripts and so forth, they had to all pass through rigorous approvals processes. And it was basically the state that decided whether or not to publish or distribute a certain book. And by the way, it wasn't just the political messaging that was throttled. The censorship also affected, you know, novels and poetry and even music as well. So for example, foreign rock and jazz music probably was very, very hard to come by back then. And even, you know, the fictional classic Dr. Zhivago was banned. And it was banned because of the individual characters in it. Or rather, because there were so many individual characters. And so presumably, this style of storytelling was not conducive to the collectivist Soviet culture that they were trying to portray generally. But here's the thing, though, about the censorship regime. It was not a complete silencing of dissenting voices. But rather, it was this selective bottlenecking of certain views and information. So some books that were accepted, say, for example, something like speeches by Leonid Brezhnev, they would have been, of course, printed up in huge quantities. But some of the less-favored works, they might actually be published only in very limited numbers, and they just wouldn't be distributed very widely. And this is what we would call shadow banning today. So it's nothing new at all. Of course, the reason it's so Machiavellian is because it enables this facade of openness. It suggests that, yes, there are dissenting views, but they are very few and very insignificant. And by extension, if you share those views, then you are also part of that lunatic fringe. So this is totally similar to today and how Twitter emphasizes certain messages and amplifies certain influencers, mostly on the left, while it severely throttles those on the right And you can also see it in how they hand out the verification check marks for left-leaning journalists, but very rarely so for the right-leaning ones. Now, in the USSR, as society was slowly more technologized, censorship became more of a challenge because now all of a sudden, more and more people had their own radio receivers. And of course, as the foreign radio broadcasts became available, well, that was a problem because obviously you can't just easily censor foreign broadcasts, let alone live foreign broadcasts. And by the way, that issue still kind of remains today and live TV is seen as problematic in this regard. So, so TV broadcasts are often sent with a five to 10 second delay and that is precisely to prevent anything too graphic to be shown on the air accidentally. So in the control room, you'll have a live crew and, and they'll, they'll monitor the truly live material, but they'll also have the delayed feed. And let's say, for example, someone in the live feed shows a breast or pulls out a gun or drops an F or an N bomb or something like that, then the live crew can stand ready to just mute the audio or obfuscate the image somehow in the in the delayed broadcast and catch it that way. But in the Soviet Union, because people were listening to foreign feeds, they basically just had to block those broadcasts altogether. So how do you do that? Well, they installed these massive radio jamming stations. And so these were in effect you know, anti-radios. And the funny thing is that even these radio jamming stations themselves were secret. They were so secret that they had to be redacted whenever they were visible in photographs. So it was this endless circus of redactions. Anyway, this type of radio jamming, we do see a similar thing today. I mean, we see how certain unfavorable publications are being redacted from news feeds and from search results. And we see, of course, the endless de-platforming efforts. And this goes all the way to web hosting providers blocking certain undesirable websites. So it's totally the same thing today. Now, of course, back in the Soviet Union, the people in power back then, you know, they had their own bigoted views, which might mean, you know, you saw certain Jewish authors or even Jewish characters that were throttled. And that kind of reminds me of today and how, You know, Walmart, for example, they ban merchandise that states all lives matter, but they do peddle Black Lives Matter merchandise. Or you could look at how, what Twitter does, you know, they they amplify people such as as Sarah Jong, uh, and she can wish death on white folks all day long and still keep her position as a blue badge journalist. But you will be thrown off the platform if you say that a man is not a woman, because that's hate speech, you see. Anyway, it's no secret that big tech has kind of carved out its own protected groups and that those groups, you know, they will be given special treatment on the platform and the not-so-desirable groups will be squelched. Now, back in the Soviet Union, you know, you had all this doctoring of photos and pulling of books, etc., but those are only examples of outright and overt censorship, And there is also this secondary type of censorship that arises kind of as a consequence, because with enough force and repercussions, the secondary effect of censorship might be self-censorship or this self-control by the authors themselves, because nobody wants to get in trouble. And we do kind of see this as today as well. I mean, just look at the choice of words or the choice of topics that we breach in the media people avoid talking about various things. And journalists, particularly on the left, they avoid pointing out, you know, say, Biden's hair sniffing or John Podesta's peculiar interest in little boys or Obama's drone bombing or most recently here, Hunter Biden's crystal meth hobby and so forth. Anyway, back in the Soviet times, I mean, of course, there were people opposing censorship and there were people who resorted to circulating handmade copies of the banned literature. And this type of self-publishing is what you'd refer to as samizdat. It literally means self-publishing. And today, I guess it's what you'd call alt-tech, or perhaps alternative media. Anyway, this was not an easy task, and it was very dangerous to circulate this banned material. Because all the Soviet-produced typewriters, all the printing devices... They were carefully inventorized. And not just that, but what you wrote on them was trackable. And here's how that works. So the KGB, they collected each typewriter's typographic sample right at the factory. And they stored it in a government directory. And so because every typewriter has its own little features, its own little fingerprint, you can trace a certain text back to the originating typewriter and you can arrest the offending author or publisher in this instance. Pretty scary. Anyway, there were some Eastern European typewriters and, and those machines didn't really have their samples taken and so as a result, they were much more difficult to trace. Now naturally, <laughs> those were purchased by Soviet citizens and, and they were smuggled back to the Soviet Union. And, uh, and those, these brave rogue publishers... Now, they they actually used a variety of techniques and they later on also moved on to using, you know, computer printers and even printing presses to really ramp up the production of banned works. But of course, the larger scale methods, they were dangerous because as I say, all the copying machines, all the printing presses and even the typewriters, they were under control of the KGB and that output was traceable. Anyway, there was banned literature it was circulated, and it did, of course, get a certain look and feel because of all the hoops you needed to jump through to be able to publish the material. So this Samizdat literature was blurry, it was wrinkled, it had lots of glitches and typographical errors. And, and actually, over time, the dissidents in the USSR, they began to actually admire these qualities. You know, That rough style became appreciated. So this ragged guerrilla material was the real deal, and it kind of had the scars to show for it. Now, remember, though, that this Samizdat material, it never really enjoyed tremendous reach, certainly not compared to the propaganda. And the circulation of the Samizdat was pretty low. It's been estimated at around, you know, it had around 200,000 readers on average. But many of those readers were actually people of power and authority. And so the paradox of censorship that in order to be able to censor ideas, Well, you have to be aware of those ideas that you're censoring. So many of the government apparatchiks actually became readers of the Samizdat literature. And good ideas will eventually win. And I think this really kind of harkens back to the alternative media of today and the likes of Gab.com, BitChute, Minds.com, etc. It's all a natural development. And this phenomenon has taken place before, just in a slightly different form. So there really is nothing new under the sun. But the alternative channels out there, they do serve a purpose and an important one at that. And, you know, just think about how much impact a single mosquito can have in your room if you're trying to sleep at night. Anyway, following this long and grueling period of suffering, there was eventually glasnost, in other words, this reversal towards more openness in the end. Because finally in the 80s, Gorbachev finally made the country's management more transparent and they actually re-examined Soviet history. So for example, the atrocities of Stalin were acknowledged. You know, People could now study key foreign events such as you know the moon landing, the manned moon landing that is. People found out about the US civil rights movements and so forth. And all this stuff would have been suppressed prior to this. And of course, material that was previously censored would now appear in libraries and so forth. So there was eventually greater freedom of speech and there was, there was eventually more openness in the media. So the pendulum did swing from complete dystopia back towards at least a semblance of freedom. And I do think that we'll get there as well. Now, could things get worse here? Sure. And perhaps it'll get worse for a whole lot longer. But if anything is certain... I think it is that history will repeat. What do you think? Will the truth prevail? Does all tech and alternative media make a difference? Will it ever? Let me know what you think. And thanks again for listening. Well, that's it, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for listening. If you want to comment on an episode, suggest a topic, or you want to support the podcast, visit Podcast. That's N-Y-M-A-N dot media slash podcast. You can also help out by leaving a review wherever you're listening from. And thanks for listening.